Just because I blurb a book. You know, blurb. Provide one of those fanboy quotes on a dust jacket or an inset page. It doesn't mean I'll have that person on my podcast. I mean, if I blurb, it's real, it's authentic, but not everything I might blurb would I want to focus your attention on. But this special weekend extra episode of Rule Breaker Investing, the reason my producer Rick Engdahl and I are working twice as hard this week to bring you podcasts is happening because I do so deeply esteem its co-author and the founder of the conscious capitalism movement, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods. My blurb, you ask? Well, here it is on his book, Conscious Leadership, quote, John Mackey and his co-authors bring a rich assortment of my favorite type of leadership lessons, experiential ones, sometimes learned from the school of hard knocks, especially for anyone who's never heard the phrase conscious leadership before. These pages provide a master class, end quote. One of the best books of 2020, while it was probably mostly written in 2019, Conscious Leadership was really written over the more than 40 years that John Mackey has grown up into the conscious leader he is today. That's why I'm really excited to bring you this special conversation as a rare Rule Breaker Investing Weekend Extra right now, only on this weekend's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Well, a special week for Rule Breaker Investing. I hope you enjoyed the Market Cap Game Show, our quarterly game show earlier this week, and I hope you scored really well. But I'm delighted that you're joining with us this weekend for a special weekend extra edition of Rule Breaker Investing. You know, it wasn't possible to fit John Mackey in to my authors in August this year because his book wouldn't come out until September. I'm reading it aloud to my wife. We're greatly enjoying it. Haven't even quite finished it yet. And yet I still feel fully ready to do the interview I'm about to share with you with my friend John Mackey, the Whole Foods founder and Motley Fool board member. So get ready to enjoy hearing about how to put purpose first, how to lead with love if you're a leader, which sounds weak to some people, but there are a few things stronger, what integrity really means, and how to find win-win-win solutions and a lot more. This is a free-ranging conversation. Having already recorded it now, I think it gets better and better as it goes, so I think I'm going to say best for last for this episode as well. One final housekeeping note before we start. This week's upcoming Rule Breaker Investing is, of course, the RBI mailbag. So if you have any reactions to this conversation with John or anything else that we did on this motley month of September for Rule Breaker Investing, remember our email address is always rbi at fool.com and you can tweet us at RBI Podcast. Well, without further ado, Conscious Leadership with John Mackey. Well, I'm delighted to be joined this weekend by John Mackey. Full disclosure, John is a member of the Motley Fool Board of Directors. Uh, more full disclosure, John is a friend of mine, somebody I deeply esteem, and I've learned so much from over more than 10 years now. He's also the founder of the Conscious Capitalism Movement, which makes a lot of sense when you think about the book being called Conscious Leadership. And I know we have a lot of conscious capitalists listening to us this weekend, and so you'll recognize conscious leadership being one of the four tenets, the foundational elements of conscious capitalism. And John, as I've talked about conscious capitalism, both on this podcast and to audiences and with you personally over the years, 
conscious leadership has always been one that was a little fuzzy for me. It's easy to say purpose over profit or higher purpose, stakeholder integration, explain that. But trying to explain what the word leadership means when it means a thousand different things has always been fuzzy, but you've given us a lot more clarity this fall. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, people ask me what conscious leadership is, and it's kind of like, well, I mean, I, we just spent a wrote a whole book trying to explain what it is. Uh, it's it's to be more conscious is to be is to be more aware. To be more aware, it's and it's not a it's not a state of that you arrive at. It's a journey. I would say I'm more conscious as a leader today than I was five years ago. But five years ago, I was more conscious than I was 10 years ago. And so it's a journey and it's not one we ever fully arrive at because I think we can continue to learn and grow and become more awake and more conscious. I just think that the human potential of, of continuous uh, learning and growing is always there. That's our last chapter in our book, in fact. Absolutely. And it is an infinite game playing the game of leadership, and that we'll get into that a little bit later, John. Before we start, um, let me just ask you how this book came together. So I see you have two co-authors, Steve McIntosh, Carter Phipps. I read the introduction a little bit, but could you just describe the genesis of this book? Raj Sisodi and I co-authored Conscious Capitalism. That came out in 2013, and Raj is still heavily involved in the movement. We're still good good friends. Um, and... Uh, but over the last seven years since it's been published, the, I get asked more questions about conscious leadership than anything else, and it's be, at least from business people, because it's like, okay, well, how do you do this thing? How do you operationalize it? How, how can you be a more conscious leader? Because one of the points that I oftentimes make when I talk about conscious capitalism is it's very difficult to have a conscious capitalism or a conscious company or conscious capitalism organization if the leadership itself is not conscious. It's, it's kind of like the law of the lid is as conscious as you are that kind of acts as a lid if you're the leader on how conscious the organization will be for the most part so um i wanted to write a book that just took my 42 years of of experience mostly from making so many mistakes <laughs> and learning from those mistakes over the last 42 years and and share it share it with people Sarah, and we did two chapters in the Conscious Capitalism book, but we barely scratched the surface. So this book, if I was to sum it up, I'd say this book, this book is a way to become a more conscious leader. We have nine chapters in the book. It's highly participatory in the sense that we're not just giving you a theory. We're telling you how to lead with love. We're telling you the, how to do the exercises that will make you more skillful in it because leading with love is less about an emotion. And it's a lot more about a skill that you develop. And I might say the same thing about integrity and purpose and finding win, win, win solutions. These are all skills that we develop through practice. They're not natural to human beings. We, we have to learn them and we have to get better at it. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell that put that general idea out there, the, that you have to do something for 10,000 hours before you can master it. Yep. Well, the same definitely applies to being a conscious leader. You're going to have to put your 10,000 hours in and uh, so you have to work at it. It's not something that you just get automatically. Very well said, John. And you know, at the top of the show, I mentioned uh, my blurb for the book and I'm just going to reference that briefly again, which is that 
My favorite type of leadership lessons are experiential ones. It's one thing to theorize, hypothesize, uh, dream. Those are all part of the process. But what I particularly appreciate is that we're, we are reading the work of somebody who sometimes learn from the school of hard knocks because that's the school we all go to. Uh, but it's, it's experience. You've earned each of these lessons in each of these chapters. And frankly, you've made it awfully easy to interview you for this book. I'm thinking back to the 2018 interview I did on this podcast with Priya Parker, who wrote the wonderful book, The Art of Gathering. And uh, I said to Priya on that podcast, you've made it really easy and I can be a lazy interviewer because each of the chapters of your book is a line that just directs us in terms of what we should do. And so I could just sort of touch off the phrase of chapter one, two, three, four for Priya and she would go. Now, John, I'm not going to say that we're going to do exactly that, but that is going to be the inspiration for this interview. You've already referenced a few of the phrases. Let's start with the very first chapter where you say, chapter one, put purpose first. And I especially want to underline what you say on page four, whether they know it or not, every person and every organization has the potential to embrace, enact, and unify people around a higher purpose. Well, uh, you're right. Every chapter in the book is, is we did it deliberately to have people taking action or thinking about an action they should take. Put purpose first. Lead with love. Always act with integrity. These are these are action statements, and so that it's a good and it's also a good way to remember what you're what we're trying to get across in that very much in, in the chapter. So you have to put purpose first because at the end of the day, leaders do unify people around purpose. And I can just tell you in my own experience, when I started the company, when I co-founded Whole Foods, I was very I was very young, but I was on fire. I was so excited and passionate about natural and organic foods, people eating more healthfully. Uh, that was just, I just was just so excited about it. I just, it's, I just thought about it all the time. I was, I was living it. It was just, I found my own personal higher purpose in life. And so doing the store was a natural, a natural outreach for that. But what I discovered is, is that, and purpose, when a person has strong purpose, that creates a certain type of charisma. It, it is, it's its own magnet. It's its own strange attractor. It brings people to it. We are attracted to people who have a strong sense of purpose that, and, and because we long to have purpose ourselves. So Whole Foods has always been, because we have a strong sense of purpose at Whole Foods, we've always attracted people to it that share that purpose, people that really want to eat natural, whole, organic foods, people that want to have a healthier lifestyle have been naturally attracted to whole foods. And our purpose is still very integrated and deep into, into who we are. So that's why we say put purpose first, because the rest of it, if you don't have purpose at the foundation, it's, it's kind of like, think of purpose as kind of, if you're trying to build a, a house or a, uh, an office or any kind of new building, you have to put your foundation in first and purpose is the foundation for the rest of the structure. And it's not something you can add in later. It's you can't put the foundation of a house in after you built it. <laughs> it's too late. It's got to be put in first. And so purpose is sort of the foundation of an organization. And so it needs to be the foundational piece that we put in at the very beginning. 
and it's it's very powerful. And in that chapter, John, you 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 say the first job of every leader is connecting people, connect people to purpose. And boy, do I want that from my leaders, whether we're talking about the political world today, the business world, the world of culture, the world at large, um, connecting people to purpose. Now, one thing that you, you mentioned Roy Spence, who I've had the pleasure of having on the podcast before. You quote Roy at one point saying, don't ask kids what they want to do when they grow up. Ask them what they love to do. And I love that, that line from Roy. Obviously, you brought it into the book. I'm just wondering, when you're connecting people to purpose, do you need to seek out as an entrepreneur people who pre-love it, who come in already loving the vision for Whole Foods? How easy is it to manufacture or attract people to purpose? Well, it's some people just won't be susceptible to um, to the purpose. They just it just won't resonate with them. So people have natural. It's like a vaccination some purposes won't grab them um if somebody was trying to uh push marxism on me or or some esoteric religion i I, they wouldn't get any place no matter how passionate they were about it so we sort of have an immune system to some purposes Mm -hmm. that being said um in general when people are excited about something and when they're enthusiastic about something it tends to be infectious tends to get us excited about it as well. I mean, and that's one way we make our world bigger is if somebody can communicate their, what they're excited about, what they're passionate about, what their own sense of purpose is, then we can feel it. We can feel their energy and it gets us excited too. It just gets us, uh, uh, when you, if I'm seeing people that I'm no great dancer, but I love watching people dance that are skilled dancers that are doing it. And you can see they're very passionate about it and think how hard they practiced to get to that skill level. Mm. Well, I mean, it's fun to watch the same thing with a musician or a professional basketball player, or really any skill that people do well. Um, that kind of mimics what I'm talking about with purpose because it, it's a pleasure to watch it. It gets us excited. It gets us energized. We use that example from Roy, that quote from Roy in the book, because that's the key to finding your own purpose. Your own purpose comes from the things that you are interested in. My awakening to my own purpose was when I was 23 years old, I moved into this vegetarian cooperative when I was going to the University of Texas. And I wasn't a vegetarian, but I was interested in all things counterculture back then. I just thought I'd meet super interesting people if they were vegetarians back in that. This is... It was a long time ago, right? So this was back when I hadn't known any vegetarians before I moved into a vegetarian co-op. But what happened was I went in there and I started to learn about the natural and organic foods that we were, we were eating in the co-op. And I thought, this is interesting stuff. And then I learned how to cook and I realized, my God, cooking's fun. I, I, I didn't even know. I, didn't, I never cooked before. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. And, and the more I learned, the more interested I got. And, and, and then it, over time, it, it just got, as I got deeper into it, it got to be kind of an infinite game in the sense that I saw it as inexhaustible. I was never going to completely understand all this. I was never going to completely master it. It was fascinating. And by the way, I felt that same way about business when I started really learning about business. I thought, this is such interesting stuff. I had no idea business could be so interesting. I have so much to learn. 
kind of another infinite game. And so I think that's how people discover purpose because they follow things they're interested in. And as they get deeper into it, new layers of meaning begin to unveil themselves. And those layers of meaning get us excited and, and want to get us even deeper into it. And then all of a sudden we may have discovered a higher purpose for ourselves because we get more and more excited, more and more passionate. Other things we might get into don't hold our interest. They don't take us to deeper levels. We learn about it and it's like, okay, I've, I've learned all I want to learn about giraffes and uh, interesting, interesting animals, but I'm not passionate about it. I don't, it doesn't make me want to become a, um, a veterinarian or a, what's the word when you're, you have a, if you have a passion for plants, you could study and become a botanist. What's the word, David, when you want to study animals and, and, uh, let's go with a biologist, <laughs> a lover of life. <laughs> okay, fine. Life science. Exactly. <laughs> That's fine. I actually am very interested in biology. I find it very interesting. I love studying in school, but it, it, it didn't get me like super excited. And so it's, we discover purpose for ourselves as we follow things we're interested in and they take us into, um, into deeper levels of meaning. And the deeper we go, the more interested we get in it until it could become our purpose, whatever that might be. Yep. So that's one reason we like our kids to try to explore a lot of different things, right? Because who knows what's going to spark them. And I guess I should also correct myself and say maybe zoology would be a good example of what you're talking about, John, as well. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Thank you. All right. Zoology is exactly the word. One of my pet peeves is apparently it is pronounced zoology, not zoology. There are not three O's after the Z in zoology. So small side note for the pedants among us. I'm a Texan and we mispronounce many words in the English language. So I'm going to stay with zoology because that's how it's spelled. <laughs> Uh, well, the two O's, and that's how you—that's how zoo is spelled, right? Right. But then there's the zo, and then the ology part. But we're not going to go there any further. We should spell it Z O E L O G Y. Zoology. Zoology. <laughs> okay. Onward. <laughs> All right. So chapter chapter two was really the stump speech that you were giving earlier this year. It's entitled "Lead with Love." You do a beautiful job talking about what love really does mean in the marketplace and in business. You take some of the virtues, generosity, gratitude, appreciation, you break them down. You give us real ways that we as leaders can show that in our lives. You generously came through Washington, D.C. and spoke to our Conscious Capitalism D.C. chapter, a sellout crowd at the National Press Club that night. So I know we could spend this entire interview just on the chapter Lead with Love. It's always um, sad for me that we can't go deeper into any book in the 45 to 60 minutes that we do spend with it. John, the section title early on in that chapter, I just want you to speak to this. You, you section titled it with Battlefields, Jungles, Sharks, and Sports. What are you conveying at the start of that chapter? If you talk to people about love in the workplace, generally you'll get a quizzical look. And I've, I've done all this media around the book, so I've been on CNN and I've been on um, uh, Bloomberg. I've been on short little television things. And uh, more than once I've been asked about leading with love and what, how can you do that in business? Business is this cutthroat area. So how can you have love there? That seems, that seems real woo woo. One guy said that seems really woo woo to me. And that's why love is not more common in business is because people, the way they think about business, they think about it in terms of hyper competition and, and the metaphors that we use are frequently used to structure the way we think about it is 
war metaphors, Darwinian survival metaphors, sports win-lose metaphors. Shark Tank is an example. That's why we, we mentioned sharks, because Shark Tank is you have these entrepreneurs and, and they, uh, they go into the Shark Tank and try to get with these tough-minded venture capitalists to see which one will survive the Shark Tank. Uh, so again, like hyper-competitive metaphors. We talked about the Game of Thrones is another example of an incredibly um, hyper-competitive universe. Those of you that read the books or watched the show. And so business is portrayed in this very kind of unflattering way that it's, it's all about winning. It's all about surviving. It's all about conquering, uh, conquering market share. And uh, uh, love has no place in a world of hyper competition because love is seen by most people as sort of weak. It's something you do when you come home from the wars. You come back to your family with a few scars and some t- stories to tell, and now you can be your loving self again. But when you're in there slaughtering people, there's no, no room for love. And same thing in all the other metaphors. Love is squeezed out as just not appropriate in a world where it's hyper-competitive. Mm. But what I've learned is that love is one of the most human things that people can do. We are, by very, our very nature, we're loving beings. And so checking love at the door when you come to work seems to me to be a very stupid thing to do. Now, I'm not talking about romantic love and I'm not talking about sexual love. Let's just say that there's good reasons to maybe check those at the door. But I am talking about the type of love that bonds teams together, that leads to people trusting, committing, caring about, helping, uh, the camaraderie that uh, the teams need to reach their highest potential. David, there's two things I've learned about that really helps people stay longer in an organization. And they're the first two chapters of our book. And the first one is people want to feel like their work is somehow or another contributing to making the world a better place, that it has some type of connection. If, if people don't feel like that way, then they often don't want to stay. If they're just making widgets, then they don't really see the point of it, except to make money and earn a living. And that often is not enough to hold people. They want to see that their work is making a difference. And the second thing people want is people want to feel somebody cares about them. So if they are working in a company and they feel like nobody cares about them, they don't feel like the company cares about them at all, that they're just sort of a cog in a in a wheel or an expendable piece on the chessboard, they're not going to stick around. But when you give people a sense of purpose and deeper meaning in their work, and at the same time, they feel like they're part of the family, they feel like they're loved and cared for, they're going to work with you for, for many, many years, and they're, going to, and they're going to give you the very best creativity and the best that they have, and you will, you will engender loyalty. So love is what drives that. And it's a shame that so many organizations fail to see the power of love. And it's very powerful. And it's the glue that holds an organization together, a culture together. It's, it's why I've been doing Whole Foods for 42 years. At the end of the day, it's, for me, it's been about purpose and it's been about love. I love so many people that have been on this journey with me. And John, it's, it's great to hear somebody as accomplished as you are, the founder of Whole Foods, 
Uh, now a significant contributor to one of my favorite stocks as well, Amazon.com today, to hear you say that. I think a lot of people are disarmed by that. As you mentioned, you're going on CNN and talking about it and they think it's frou-frou, woo-woo stuff. But really, what you've just talked about is the way a lot of not-for-profits work. I think a lot of workplaces, the reason people like not-for-profits is because they do seem chapter one, very purpose-driven, and they do seem chapter two, like loving places. Not all of them are, but it's probably a stereotype about the not-for-profit sector that they do those two things really well. That's in part why it's so powerful when it's done well in the commercial sector where you're creating additional value besides. And and that's, you know, as a fellow rule breaker, as a fellow fool, somebody who challenges conventional wisdom, I always love it when people seize on critical insights that surprise. And this to me is one of them, John. So thank you for that. Hey, David, I've always been a rule breaker, baby. You bet. Absolutely. Maybe we'll talk investing a little later. Uh, I'm trying to pack so much into this interview, but thanks again. Let's go to the next chapter of the book, Always Act with Integrity. Now, you know, it's one thing, I guess, to say. Integrity is one of those words that always looks good on paper until you figure out it was also one of the core values of Enron. So it's one thing for it to be on paper. It's another to put it into play. Again, part of the reason I love your book, Conscious Leadership, John, is because this is experiential. You're giving us um, uh, ways to actually make this happen. You focus a lot on on trust in this chapter. One of my favorite definitions of leadership, I, I don't know if it's any, I can't remember, I don't think it's in your book. And there are a thousand definitions of leadership, but one of them is leaders have willing followers. Now that's not true of a lot of uh, leaders of countries today. They don't, don't actually have, uh, in some of the more distressed areas of the world, willing followers. But I think the way you have willing followers in life, you've already spoken to it, purpose and love, but also integrity and trust. Could you speak to that some? Let me just talk more about integrity and trust is an an aspect of integrity. Just like there's many aspects of love, um, there's many aspects of integrity and and there's there's honesty, there's trustworthiness, there's honor, and there's authenticity. There's there's several different qualities that make up um, integrity. And so, one thing to realize, integrity, I found it in my experience in life, integrity is not extraordinarily rare, but it's also not that common. And then one of the things that, that, that I've learned is that, you know, most people don't tell the truth. It's just, and it starts when we're children, because show me a two-year-old child that's talking and I'll show you a little liar. Kids are liars. They learn very early to start lying, to, to avoid criticism, to fool their parents for fun, um, to avoid punishment, uh, and they get very skilled at it quickly. And it, it's a habit, and then they, they get more skilled as more time passes. And we have to learn integrity. Integrity is something that we have to practice. It's not natural for people to tell the truth. It's not natural for people to be authentic. People hide their authentic selves because they don't want to be judged. Mm. They don't want to be poked fun at. They don't want to be ridiculed. As children, we were ridiculed and we began to pretend to be somebody we weren't because we we didn't think we'd get criticism or laughed at as much, right? So we have to unlearn a lot of the things we learn as children to become a person of integrity, to tell the truth, to be authentic, to be trustworthy, to have honor. And by honor, we mean I'm not the kind of person that would do something like that. I would not, if I was playing a game with you, David, I would never cheat because 
I'm not the kind of person that cheats. It, it would, well, game wouldn't be any fun anymore, for one thing. And it was just the wrong thing to do, right? So I wouldn't steal anything. I mean, I'm just not that kind of person. So integrity is very important. And here's the thing. Trustworthiness is part of integrity. But if you, if you have honor and you tell the truth and you have courage, moral courage as well, people will trust you. Because we trust people that have integrity. So trustworthiness is an aspect of integrity, and it's also one of the results of having integrity. We will be more trusted. We trust people that we know we can count on who aren't going to tell us one thing and then change their mind the next time they see us or tell us a lie and mislead us. Or if it's convenient, they will cheat. Um, We don't trust people like that. I oftentimes will, you'll hear the expression, you know, trust me. And trust is something that is almost always earned. It is, not, and we trust on a continuum, in, meaning for me to trust you 100% totally, I would have to know you extremely well. But hey, when I go to a Starbucks and get a coffee, I trust that they're not going to poison me, right? I have some trust. There might be things I may not trust with them because I don't know them that well. Yes. And, and as we know people more, we come to discover that some people are more trustworthy than others. If you, somebody you can tell a secret to and they'll keep the secret, others will go gossip about it and blah, 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 behind your back. Well, you stop telling them your secrets. You don't trust them as much, right? So people that have high integrity are very trustworthy. And, trust, and integrity is so important in business and, and it's important in life because if you want people to be loyal to you, then they, they, need to, they need to feel like you care about them. But they also want to f- feel like you're somebody that's got their back. You, ever, you hear that expression, I've got your back. That also means you can trust me. I have integrity. I have your back. I won't betray you. You can count on me. So integrity, extremely important. Always act with integrity. Warren Buffett says at some place, you can spend a whole lifetime building a reputation and you can throw it away in 10 minutes. That's kind of the way integrity is. You, you have to work at it. You build it up. But you can blow it and lose trust and, uh, uh, by doing some horrible act that lacked integrity. You know? <laughs> so true. So true, John. And you know, I'm glad you mentioned games because we're both gamers. And I'm thinking about how we've enjoyed a couple of games of Wingspan together. Wingspan, a game I've mentioned a few times on this podcast. We got to play a couple times in 2019. Haven't had as much opportunity to see anybody face-to-face in 2020, but I'm looking forward to playing a game with you again. I am reminded of just a brief story in my own life. And When I was in my 20s, I was playing tennis against somebody older than I was, and I hit a shot that I thought was out on the back line, and he said it was in. And I asked him afterwards about that. I said, Kimball, my friend Kimball Krause, I said, Kimball, I thought, I'm pretty sure my ball was out. He said, you know, anytime it's close, I always give it to my opponent. And, and I've always remembered that ever since. And I've tried to always do that myself when I'm playing games with people. Always give them the benefit of the doubt. It, that's much more important than winning that point, isn't it? And yet, how many people play tennis the wrong way in my mind? Well, that's very good to know because... I would say that I never call a shot out that I think is in because that would have no honor. But if I do think it's out, I usually call it out. But I kind of like the way your friend's doing it because it's, it's, it's just extending that line to be absolutely certain. And, uh, you know, Warren Buffett also says at one point, 
uh, I'm going to miss quote him a little bit, but you'll get the spirit of it. Uh, he, he says, if you can see the gray lines of, you know, in, in integrity, you're, you're, you're too close to it. Mm. Great line. John, uh, chapter four, find win-win-win solutions. I just want to share briefly, as you are a Motley Fool board member, earlier this year, um, we were stuck on something at, at a board level. And, uh, and I had one opinion. I think Tom had a different opinion. And, and you heard both sides of us and the company besides. And you said, you know what, guys? Here's the thing. I'm hearing a win-lose from one of you guys and a lose-win from the other guy. And what we're not getting to, and you have to get there, is you need to find the win-win. You win, Dave. You win, Tom. By the way, company wins too. Win, win, win. That made such an impression on me earlier this year. Again, I've known you for more than 10 years, but it was word, you know, word said in year 11 of our relationship that I'm so glad I can share that with the world. And you're doing that in this chapter in the book because it is, you said, is anyone losing? You know, is anyone losing is one of the chapter titles. And the answer is you can't let them lose. And boy, do I want that leadership in my world. John, when did win, win, win abundance mentality first come to you? Was, were you raised with it? No, I think, I think almost nobody is raised that way. Nobody thinks that way. We, we think in terms of, of polarities. That's how most people structure their reality. And it's one of the biggest challenges business has. So we do think win-lose, and we do think good and evil, light and darkness. We tend to think in terms of opposites, with, and, and that's a real problem. And it's, it's one, of, it, one of the things that's come to my attention, having pushed conscious capitalism and stakeholder theory for so many years and being so frustrated that people don't understand it. And I think I cracked the code why most people don't understand it. They don't understand it because they keep trying to put stakeholder theory into a win-lose framework. And so, for example, if many people think if somebody gets rich, then they're just greedy and they're taking a bigger piece of a fixed pie, right? So somebody gets rich, so somebody else is getting poorer. Mm. Again, this sort of polarity. And the, th the amazing thing about stakeholders Inherently, stakeholders are about win, win, win. All the major stakeholders can win. And they do win generally when they're trading with a, a business because the customers are winning or they wouldn't be making these change. The employees are winning or they wouldn't want to work there. And they're, and they're getting compensation and benefits and opportunities to grow. Um, suppliers wouldn't trade if it wasn't beneficial for them. So they're getting a win. The investors wouldn't invest if they weren't getting a win or they try to sell their stock, if they were unhappy with the company or didn't think it was going to continue to, to make money, communities win because the, the businesses produce taxes that they're paid. They produce jobs in the community, which re also results in additional downstream um, uh, impacts that are positive. And they also are philanthropic. They, they donate money. They support local nonprofits or, or even national global nonprofits. Business inherently is a win-win-win framework, and that's unfortunate because it's usually condemned as it's just about the money. It's just about profits. And I oftentimes will hear people contrast, well, which is more important, purpose or profits? And it's like, well, they're both important. <laughs> it's not an either-or. And business is inherently not an either-or. So part of being a conscious leader and seeking win-win-win solutions 
is recognizing that business is not a win-lose game. And the hardest thing that people have that don't like business, they don't understand that it's not a win-lose game. They've got a framework that doesn't see the stakeholders winning, and which is why I oftentimes say what we have to do as conscious leaders and conscious capitalists is we have to communicate again and again and again about the multiple value streams that are being created in business where all these stakeholders are, are benefiting from it. People don't see it. They just see somebody getting rich and they think that creates inequality and it's unjust because their framework is an inadequate framework to really understand what's going on. And so, David, think about our where our nation's at right now. And one of the reasons that we need conscious leaders, we need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of conscious leaders. Look how our country is kind of at war with itself. I mean, so many people are angry, racism issues in the air, inclusivity issues, um, uh, social justice issues, and we're going to go through an election cycle that's probably going to be the most divisive of our lives. It, it already is shaping up that way. We may have lawsuits after the election cycle, after the elections are over to determine the winner. Who's thinking win, win, win? I mean, it's just... It's, it's, it's a hyper-competitive model and a hyper-competitive rivalry where people are not working together. Congress doesn't work together. They don't work to pass bills together. If, if the Democrats uh, recommend one thing, the Republicans are against them. The Republicans recommend something, the Democrats are against it. And we need win-win-win thinking in every aspect of our lives. We need it in business. We need it in politics. We need it in government. We need it in education. We need it in healthcare. We need it everywhere. And it's, it's that one, this one chapter, if people would really start to think win, 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 first of all, it's a complete ethical code. You, you could, you could run your entire life ethically following a win, win, win formula. Good for me. Good for you. Good for all of us. Right. And we transform our society. If we, if we began to have more conscious leaders think win, 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 I will tell you, it will transform your business if you start doing that. Because all your stakeholders are connected together. They're all inter interdependent. And our job is to create value simultaneously for all of them. And by the way, that includes the investors. <laughs> it's not a trade-off mentality. That's win-lose. It's everybody winning. I agree, John. And I mean, it's it, you were beautifully eloquent there, so I'm not going to add much more other than to say in that chapter, you do, do quote Martin Luther King extensively at one point. And that's a great example of somebody who in some ways speaks to our nation today, even it's though it's decades old now, uh, but it is looking for the wins and creating a sense that we can all be part of a solution, not half of us losing as a political party or a race or however we're thinking about it. So um, a lot of my exemplars, a lot of the people that I listen to um, have that mentality. And yet, as you point out, we're not raised with it. It's not the sports mentality that we have. I know we're both sports fans. We're used to one team winning, one team losing. And boy, does that set people's minds to think that that's how life works. But I think if life is a game, it's a co-op. That's what I often say to our new employees. <laughs> it's a cooperative game. And, uh, and the more we figure that out, the earlier, the better off we and others are going to be. John, you got four more chapters in this book. Time's going to start running out. Your time is precious to me. So um, we're not going to be able to go into equal depth on each of them. Okay. I'm going to say right now, though, innovate and create value is chapter five. Think long-term is chapter six. Boy, should we talk a little bit about that, both investing 
and business. But then you, your closing section, kind of on people and culture, uh, constantly evolve the team, regularly revitalize, and continuously learn and grow. So before I go to my next question for you, I just want my listeners to know that is the guts of the book. All nine of those chapters, each one stands on its own as something worthy of exposing oneself to. I'm, I'm going to give short shrift to innovate and create value a little bit because I think that um, you know, as rule breakers, a lot of us recognize how important it is to innovate, how hard it is to innovate. Um, I do want you to speak briefly, though, because you talk about organizational design at one point and how how if you create the right incentives and you design that in, you can really innovate. If you don't, you will probably not innovate. And, you know, I think Whole Foods is an example. How did you design Whole Foods in some ways to enable you to innovate and create value differently than others would have built their corpse? Well, I don't think Whole Foods actually designed uh, its its culture and its structure. It kind of evolved. Uh, I think an, I think an evolution. It emerged. Mm-hmm. It developed over time. I think it. I think that's a better metaphor than design, which is mean. You know, we. When I was twenty four years old, I thought all this up and we put it down. We've been following it ever since. It's not that way at all. It was. <laughs> We did some things. Some things worked. We kept doing them. Other things we tried didn't work. We stopped doing them. But I can tell you how Whole Foods is structured now, uh, and even if it's not been designed in any sort of uh, sure. strict fashion, Whole Foods is organized into sort of interdependent, interlocking teams. You started a store, and everybody that works in a store is a team member. That's that's we don't call them employees or team members, and they're team members because they're part of a team. And these teams could be like the grocery team or the produce team or the specialty team, which is beer, wine, uh, cheese, chocolate, coffee. Uh, They could be in the prepared foods team or the bakery team. We have these teams Mm -hmm. and each person that joins, joins a team and they will focus on that team. Now, increasingly, we're having people also go get cross trained in other teams, but we're still organized into fundamental teams with a team leader and that their career path there would be so we start out as a as a team member and then you could become an assistant team leader and then you could become a team leader then you could become assistant store team leader and then you could become a store team leader and then you could become a regional associate a regional vice president and be a regional president and there's there's this interlocking teams mm. so every every team in a store has a team leader and the team leader is part of the store leadership team led by the store team leader and then the store team leader is part of the regional – they're part of the regional team that has led by a regional president. And then we have what we call the Whole Foods uh, Leadership Network, which consists of all the regional presidents, uh, all 11 of them, plus the senior vice presidents in our functional areas. Um, and uh, that's about – at Whole Foods, that's about 28 people. That forms the, the Whole Foods Leadership Network. And then above that is the executive team which is um, about the top 12 or 13 people in the company that are also in the Whole Foods Market Leadership Team. So if you're a team leader, you're going to be in at least two teams. Mm. So these are all interlocking. They're all sort of semi-self-empowered. And uh, that's how Whole Foods... That's not a whole lot different than the way our bodies are organized, right? We have cells. Cells are grouped into tissues. Tissues become organs. Organs become part of the whole body, right? So we're, we're, it's, it's, 
we're all we're made of trillions of cells that are organized into tissues, which organize into organs, which end up making up our body. So, hey, it works pretty well for a complex human being. It can also work pretty well for complex organ, organ, organizations. And you beautifully explained. And, and earlier, I didn't mean to imply, which I think I did, that this was all designed by some master planner at the beginning of time for you. I'm very well aware of how you have learned over the course of time. And, and in fact, you actually at one point quote um, our company and my talented brother, our CEO, Tom Gardner, in terms of just learning as you go and adding things. So I definitely get that. But I do want to point out that you have sort of fractals. Fractal is one of my favorite concepts where if you zoom in and look at a small piece of it, it's designed the same way when you zoom out, you see all of it. It's like a honeycomb for for bees. And so you gave, it, you gave us a great look there. It's sort of a fractal of, of how it how you've designed it over the course of time with, with, with a lot of help from others. But I think what, what jumps out to me about your design is you, you're giving autonomy at a store level that most other retail businesses don't have. They're having to report to corporate, uh, whereas my impression of my local Whole Foods, and each one, as I understand it, John, is that they kind of make their own decisions. They don't have to do what corporate says. The one side of Washington, D.C., that Whole Foods could do, be doing something totally different than the other side of the same city, another Whole Foods in another neighborhood. Is that still true? And am I right about that? It's still true, but it's less true today than it was 10 years ago. It's less true since we merged with Amazon. Scale. It was, it was, it was less true. Increasingly, um, people expect certain things. They expect more consistency from a corporation. Right. So whether it be products or the way people dress or the way they behave – We've been an increasing pressure, uh, not from Amazon, but just from the, the marketplace in general to be more consistent. Right. And so that we have to do the, the art of maintaining consistency while still allowing innovation to occur. And so we do try to do both. And but they, there is a we call them a polarity that could be there, not an opposite polarity, but an, a, a, a polarity that, that creates tension between it. And you have to try to, and a good polarity of those tension. We talk about polarity theory in the book a little bit. Yep. You, the, the, the tension between polarity like that can be very healthy. And if, if Whole Foods gets too consistent, it's not going to be innovative or creative anymore. And it's in terms of people are going to feel too straightjacketed. On the other hand, if there's too much freedom, then you're going to lack consistency, and that's going to frustrate a lot of customers. So we've got to try to be both. Uh, absolutely. Especially at greater and greater scale. It makes a lot of sense. Starbucks is a great example of a company that delivers pretty consistently, or McDonald's over the years, pretty consistently at massive scale. So so I get that. Well, John, chapter six, think long term. For any listener of this podcast, I think they're drummed over the head with that because that, to me anyway, is as I know you're a rule breaker investor too. I mean, part of our edge is that we think long-term in an industry where so many people are thinking short-term. In fact, some people are trying to make money inside of a second with high-frequency trading. So it's just so radically different as a rule breaker to think long-term as an investor. But John, in business, in your experience, how many businesses, how many peer CEOs of yours truly act and think long-term? What percent ballpark? Well, if you're a private company, it's a lot easier to think long term than if you're a public company. The what you read about public companies is fundamentally true. There is tremendous pressure to to meet quarterly expectations. 
because if you don't meet them, your stock just gets completely hammered. And if that happens for very long, you run the risk of getting shareholder activists that will come in and basically try to take over the company and throw the management out and get, bring new management. So management doesn't want to lose their job. So they're, they, they have to focus more than they would like probably on the short term. And of course, one of the reasons we wanted to merge with Amazon is because Jeff Bezos has always had a really long-term perspective on things. And Amazon's been able to, to be able to do things that create really long-term value, even though there's a short-term uh, focus on it. But they've, they've been such a good job at communicating to the investment community. Their stock doesn't get hammered that same way, uh, at least it hasn't in the past. So I do think thinking long-term is, is critical in investing. It's critical in building value in business. Because, I mean, let's take Whole Foods, for example. When we sign a store... We, we almost never sign a store that's not done have at least a 20 year lease on it. And usually with multiple option periods after that, we, we always, we never want to have a store that we, we can't have for at least 30 years or, wow. you know, 40, or 40 or 50 years. And that's because a lot of the real gains are going to occur not in the first few years. You're building up your customer base and you, and, and you're building trust and loyalty and commitment and, then over time, your productivity goes, gets higher, your, 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 other, your other expenses, your depreciation drops. So a lot of the, the really, um, the highest EBITDA performance is going to be later on in that cycle. So thinking long-term and investing in stores is something that we have to do basically all the time. And I will give the Motley full credit that they have really taught me and you have taught me and Tom and the whole Andy Cross and the whole Morgan Housel, the, everybody that's been involved in the fool for many years has taught me to be patient and think long-term. And, uh, that's how I, that's what I do. I make investments and, uh, uh I almost never sell them unless, unless I'm tax loss harvesting, which I do in December yep. or, or if I just think, um, you know what? This is so out of whack right now. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take a capital gain on it and I'll buy it back. Uh, I'll have an opportunity to buy it back later. I don't. It's not really speculation. I did it on a couple of stocks recently. One of which worked. Uh, my Shopify was up. I was up forty. I was up forty times on it in about four years, and I just went ahead and sold it. But and it's dropped off since I sold it. So, and then I did. I sold my Tesla too. I thought. Well, this is now worth more than all the all the, the General Motors, Ford, all, all you, know, you know, Toyota, any of the other. So many of these combined, it was worth more than that. And I thought, he's a genius. I love the stock, but I was up, I don't know, 15x on it, sold it. It's gone up, so I, I probably should have held that one longer. But I, I'll own Tesla again. But I, I did. Uh, I do think I, I, in general, investing. I think really long term. I'm, I'm hold a stock. I like what Warren Buffett says. What's your favorite holding period of a stock? Forever. And the answer is forever. Exactly. Well, John, certainly your passion around the stock market and investing is something that you and I have have connected on over the years. Something else that you're really good at, and chapter eight, this is the title of the chapter, uh, regularly revitalize. Now, John, I know you as somebody who is physically vigorous. You, you've walked the Appalachian Trail a number of times. This is almost like an annual thing for you. You're, you're basically a lot more active than me or most people 
I know. I don't know if you count that as revitalizing. To some of us, it might sound exhausting, but I think in your own behavior and habits over your life, you're an exemplar to a lot of us. Could you speak somewhat to how leaders should and can revitalize? Sure. Uh, um, I think, let me talk about what I think is the most important way to revitalize and the one that's often neglected in business. And that's just getting enough sleep and a quality sleep. I will have to say that one of the things I absolutely love, my probably the favorite thing on my Apple Watch is my auto sleep, which tracks my sleep, which tracks not only um, how long I sleep, but how deep I sleep, the quality of the sleep. Uh, and I can track that over time. It tracks my, um, my pulse rate. And I, like, I'll tell you something I learned from um, that's, that's made a behavior change for me is I've learned anytime I drink any alcohol at all, just one glass of wine, one beer, my pulse rate goes up that night and my deep sleep plummets, even just one simple drink. And, if, and when I don't drink, I sleep deeper and I sleep longer. My base uh, pulse rate is around 49 or 50. That goes up to 58 to 60 after I've been drinking. And the more I drink, the less well I sleep. And, and so that has actually caused a behavior change. I haven't 100% given up alcohol, but I've probably cut my drinking down 90% um, in the last year. Hmm. So my wife doesn't drink, so she's very happy about that. <laughs> so sleep is very important. And the older I get, the more important I think it is. Sleep is the, the idea when I was younger, it was very macho to be able to, hey, I can go. I'm, I only sleep four hours a night. And I can work 80 hours a week. And, you know, I mean, I did that when I was younger and, and uh, it was really stupid because you're just burning yourself out. So sleep is extremely important. And then, of course, diet is important. And, you know, that I have a little different view on that one. I think I think eating lots of fruits and vegetables really supercharges the immune system. So yeah, mostly following a, a whole foods plant based diet, I think, is the best thing for our long term health and well-being. That's been my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. uh, movement, you know, you're talking about me hiking out. It's not just hiking. It's getting out in nature, getting out in nature to me is completely revitalizing. There's something about the beauty and rhythm of nature that renews my, renews myself. I get away from my problems when I'm out on the trail. Uh, but I try to get out every day and go for an hour walk or longer before I go to work. I get up very early. I, I'm getting up at between five and six generally. Mm. And I, I try to exercise in the morning and get that, get that, done. It energizes me for the day. Um, I think meditation, we have to learn how to manage stress. And the best way I found how to manage stress is a meditation. B is probably music. Music is a great way for me to manage stress because it, if I put the right music on, it changes my mood to, um, uh, different than if I'm worried about something or something's bothering me or I'm upset about it. Music is a very powerful tool for making a mental emotional shift within my being. And we have a lot more in that chapter. I just think it's very important if you're, because I think life should be thought of as a marathon and not a sprint. And if you take good care of yourself, you're not going to get these diseases that other people are getting. And, and uh, you, you can, the health span is, it's not just how long you live. It's the quality of life, the health span that you have while you're living. And I want to live a long time, but I also want to live healthily a long time. And I feel like I'm vibrant health and, uh, um, I hope I knock on wood that that'll still be true 10, 15, 20 years from now. 
Spectacularly well said and inspirational. Thank you very much. John, the final chapter of your book, uh, Continuously Learn and Grow. Certainly, um, the impression that some of us may have had that after you get that final degree, whether it's an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree, whatever it is, your learning is done and then it's time to be an adult and take a job and get promotions and be CEO one day. If that was ever true, it it's increasingly not true today, especially as the world keeps changing and new software languages show up and new possibilities show up and other ones are destroyed and we all have to keep our eyes open. What is one or two of the best bits of advice that you have for us in terms of continuously learning and growing as conscious leaders? The best ways I know how to continuously learn and grow is, um, first, I'm going to say relationships because I've learned more from being married than anything else in my life in terms of growing emotionally. I always joke that I've been my wife's biggest life project to try to make something of me. <laughs> and and uh, I, I say that because I know a lot of men experience it that way. And so, but relationships have taught me the most. Love teaches me the most and, and the things that really matter. Kids are a great teacher for people as well. Uh, but also my friends, my colleagues, my friends, people that, people that love me have helped me grow the most. Secondly, books. I'm a passionate reader. I just love to read. Having audio books has now given me a whole other dimension of, of I can learn a lot from listening to books when I'm out for a walk or I'm driving. Uh, those are those are two good two and really important ways for me. But the other way is simply to just pay attention. Most people are lost in their mind stream. We have this chatter in our brains that goes on all the time, right? And we just we just lose ourselves in it. We just are hypnotized by it. And you're not going to learn anything when you're stuck in your mind chatter. You learn when you're in the moment, when you're paying attention to what's around you. And if you're if you're with people, to be paying attention to those people, giving them your full attention, you will learn a lot about people if you will pay attention to them. So our attention, wherever we focus it, we have a finite amount of attention that we can give. And we shouldn't waste that attention because the attention is the way we learn. So realize that you only have so much attention to give each day. Don't waste it. Give it on the most valuable, important things, which is going to be people, relationships, and your learning. Things that are, that are going to help you become a better, wiser, happier human being. Double underline. On page 33 of the book, this is how we're going to close our conversation. Page 33, you write, humans are also creatures of elevated emotion, artistic imagination, joy, laughter, and leaps of faith. We imagine new realities, invent amazing things, embrace larger perspectives, create extraordinary beauty, discover new realities, build communities, and carefully reflect on all of it. We love. Our species contains all of those capacities and more. And so should business. John, can you give us a minute or two of any final thoughts you'd like to share this weekend? That's such a great quote. That is one of my favorite quotes in the book. And I just want to make sure that I don't try to take credit for that. That Carter Fitz wrote that uh, particular line. He's a very gifted writer. And I want to make sure Carter gets credit for that because that's one of my favorite lines in the book as well. And in some ways, it sums up the book. We are we are beings that have this potential to continue to learn and grow all our lives, to go deeper into love, deeper into purpose and meaning, higher integrity, to change the way we think about reality, to find win-win-win solutions, to learn how to innovate and create. Life is this grand adventure, David. It's just this amazing adventure. 
and it doesn't last that long. We're just passing through here. So we got to just, we just got to give it all. We just got to give all we have to life to be, to be the wisest, best, most loving, caring human being that we can to do the most good that we can do in the world. You know, that one of my inspirations in life is Buckminster Fuller because he was deeply depressed when he was young. He almost committed suicide and he, he walked away from the suicide because he made he reached an internal decision. He said, instead of killing myself, I'm going to see how much good one human being can do in a lifetime. Mm. And guess what? He did a heck of a lot of good while he was alive. That's not a bad aspiration for anybody to have. How much good can we do? How much love can we share? How much innovation can we create? How much integrity can we express? We, we, we can be a work of art. Our inner beings is a work of art. And our book is dedicated to helping you create a life and a business that you'll be super proud of and that you'll get to the end of it and you'll say, this has been a good life. This has been a life well lived. Hmm. John Mackey, founder of Whole Foods, co-author of Conscious Leadership, founder of the Conscious Capitalism Movement, and I'm going to say Motley Fool board member. Thank you so much, John. What a wonderful opportunity this was for us to sit at the feet of somebody for me who is a master and get to listen, learn, and I hope be better as a consequence from this day forward. John, thank you for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. And you know I love the Motley Fool. Fool on, baby. Thank you, John. That's great. I'm glad I did double underline that line about we humans being creatures of elevated emotion, artistic imagination, joy, laughter, and leaps of faith, etc. I didn't know John was going to say it was one of his favorite lines in the book, and I love that he mentioned it was one of his co-authors who came up with it, which reminds me of how authentic John Mackey is as a leader, making sure that credit is taken where it is due. But I did double underline that in my copy of the book. I hope you enjoyed the line. I'm glad John treasures that line. I think it's so helpful to stay grounded, especially here in the year 2020. Well, thank you again for joining in with us for this special Rule Breaker Investing Weekend Extra. A reminder again, you can email us any thoughts that you have, rbi at fool.com or tweet us at rbi podcast. Coming up this week on the podcast, of course, our Rule Breaker Investing mailbag. See you then. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.